Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's pod, what's next for bio? Vaccines. We check in on the latest developments in RSV and what's happening in Pfizer and GSK's pipelines. And takeaways from Simone's conversation with Andy Plump on the BioCentury show. But first, there's one week left to register for the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit. It starts on the evening of November 14th, it's next Monday, in Redwood City, California. That's in the Bay Area. It's a great opportunity to hear from more than 50 presenting companies and over 50 speakers on 15 hot topic panels, including surviving the bear market and recruiting diverse cross-border management teams. This event has one-to-one partnering, three receptions, two exclusive conference reports, and plenty of time for senior level networking. If you can't attend in person, get a digital pass. They're also available for the full agenda. Please visit our website at biocentryeastwest.com. I hope to see you there. You'll also get to see Simone. All righty, Steve, it's been a tumultuous time of late at Bio. You've been working on a story for BioCentury on what's next for the trade group. What's happening? So I spoke with Rachel King, the interim bio president and CEO last week. It was her first day on the job. And she said her top priority is stabilizing and re-energizing bio. That's gonna be tough given the turmoil it's undergone over the last two years, both from management failures that decimated morale and led some of its most experienced executives to leave. And because the cancellation of one annual meeting and shifting another to virtual mode put a big hole in its finances. BioCentury conducted a survey of the industry about bio, a couple of top line results. Only about 10% of respondents expressed a high degree of confidence in bio's ability to influence policy in Washington, and about 50% said they had any degree of confidence. The comments indicate that there's a lot of angst around whether and how bio should engage on political and social issues. I spoke with bio's chairman, Paul Hastings, and he pushed back on some of that criticism saying that he wouldn't apologize for advocating for diversity, equity, and inclusion, or for climate change. And he said that a lot of the concerns that people expressed were about topics that were debated on BIOS board, uh, Ukraine, voting rights, women's reproductive issues, other issues, that it decided ultimately not to take public positions on, and that he and other members of BIOS executive committee have made personal statements about. So at the end of it, I draw two sets of conclusions. One is that rather than picking a new leader, bio needs a team. There's no way that there's a single individual that's gonna have all the skills that it needs going forward. And two, that bio can't spend any time looking back and it can't wait for a new leadership team. It has an extraordinarily difficult set of challenges facing it right now, starting with implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act and PDUFA, FDA legislation in the lame duck session, including a whole bunch of issues that are in front and center in the new Congress. Steve, you're right. We did do a survey. And I think for me, because we've done a few surveys, one of the things that was interesting here actually is just the incredible interest 
the, in responding. I mean, people responded immediately and quite a lot of them, and a lot of them had some very interesting things to say. I think the message for me there is how much this is important, at least to a certain section of our community. And some of the comments were very thoughtful. At the same time, you know, as we go out and we talk to people in the industry, we also know how important the Inflation Reduction Act is. And, you know, I'm going to shoot your horn here that you've really done some fantastic coverage of that. But we know it's a hot button issue. So my question really is, do you think bio has its finger on the pulse? Do you think bio knows how important this is to people? Do you think they have that same sense of urgency that you're conveying that they don't have time to figure it all out? They have to act now at the same time as figuring out their own structure. Oh, yeah. When I spoke with Paul Hastings, he said that he's hearing from members across the board, from the big companies to the small companies, from people who share his political beliefs to people who are absolutely opposed to them. So they all say their hair is on fire. The hair on fire issue is the IRA. And he gets it. Bio gets it. It's really the, the unifying thing across the industry. The thing that I think that people might not appreciate, but I think is true, and Bio certainly needs to get their act together on this, is that there is a narrow window of opportunity now to try to influence the way that the Inflation Reduction Act is implemented. There's two things that were left with a, a kind of a great deal of discretion for CMS in the law. One is exactly how they select the drugs to be subject to price negotiation, or what I would say price setting, since it's not really a negotiation. And the other is what those prices are going to be. The law sets minimum discounts from the average prices that CMS has to achieve, but it doesn't set a floor. It sets some parameters around what companies have to report to CMS and uh, what it has to take into consideration. But exactly how it goes about doing that is also not specified in the law. One of the consequences of that lack of specificity is that CEOs, investors are left in the dark. And in many cases, in the cases of pharma CEOs who I've spoken with, Vas Narasimhan from Novartis, Dave Ricks from Eli Lilly and a number of investors, Peter Kolchinsky and others, they say that they assume that the price that's going to be set is going to be equivalent to what companies would face with generic drug competition, that they're going to be very, very low. And so they're making investment decisions now based on that assumption. If in the course of discussing with CMS how it's going to implement the law, Bio learns something different, and it's in a definitive enough form that people believe in it, it would have a dramatic impact on the decisions that companies are making right now. Steve's story will be out today on biocentry.com, and we'll follow up in the coming days with the publishing of the full results of the survey. All right, let's turn to RSV. Lauren, last week, the EC approved monoclonal antibody. Bay Fortis from Sanofi and AstraZeneca to prevent RSV in infants. Pfizer reported positive data for its maternal RSV vaccine and FDA accepted a BLA for GSK's vaccine in older adults. Why all this momentum all of a sudden, Lauren? Well, it's one of those indications that 
people have been trying to develop vaccines for and have been trying to improve on the monoclonal antibody that, that is already on the market for decades. RSV has just been a challenging indication because of the viral proteins that you have to target. The problem is you need to hit the protein before it goes into the cells. So it took a long time for companies to figure out how to generate an immune response against the protein in the form that it exists in before it goes into the cells. It's sort of just a lot of activity stemming off of that discovery. And it, it's a really interesting time in the development of RSV vaccines. So it's kind of like the London buses, right? None for a long while, and then they all come at once. I think we saw this with CGRP. Maybe you would say we saw it with KRAS. I'm not sure. But is this something that's been bubbling along all the way, Lauren? Or talk a little bit about how everybody suddenly managed to, feels like everybody suddenly remembered RSV as a thing, but maybe they've been working on it in the background all the way. There have been several attempts over the years to address RSV with a vaccine. Um, as I mentioned, there is a monoclonal antibody to protect infants against the virus, but this is something that is dosed monthly and it requires a high dose. And, you know, that's something that is restricted to newborn infants or infants with certain health issues that make them incredibly susceptible to this virus. But this is something that is sending any healthy infant, especially the younger they are, the more susceptible they are, they can all end up in the hospital with this disease. I think what we've seen with the vaccines is that they're all using so far a pretty similar technology to target this prefusion protein that I mentioned. I think there are some next generation vaccines in development that are looking into mRNA. Again, you're probably targeting similar parts of the virus, but it has all stemmed from this one advance. Is one of the other nuances here that you're looking at a maternal vaccine in some cases, right? Right. So earlier this half, we saw data for older adults, which is where companies have seen the most success. And I think it's an underappreciated cause of pneumonia in older adults. But what Pfizer presented last week was the maternal immunization program. And that differentiates Pfizer in this space because a couple of other companies have failed with maternal vaccines for this indication. You know, we saw GSK have some kind of a safety issue earlier this year, and Pfizer may have accomplished something here that others haven't. So they hit one of the co-primary endpoints in the study. That was protection against the severe lower respiratory tract infections, but they were not statistically significant against all medically attended lower respiratory tract infections. So it's, it's still not entirely clear that this will get through. They are going to regulators. But they, and if they do get it through, it's probably the first vaccine that was developed as a maternal vaccine, right? There, there are other vaccines that are given to pregnant women now with the hope that they're going to protect their, their newborns, but they weren't developed that way, right? That's right. Yep. Pfizer confirmed that this would be the first that was specifically developed as a maternal vaccine to protect infants. So we know that pregnant women are given the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine and a pertussis vaccine, but those were not tested and developed specifically for pregnant women. That was something interesting that came up when I spoke with Annalisa Anderson, who is the SVP and head of Pfizer's vaccine R&D organization a few weeks ago. She talked a lot about the pharma strategy for vaccines. 
which goes well beyond the COVID vaccines and, and beyond Prevnar, where, where Pfizer has sort of been the leader in these pneumococcal conjugate vaccines for many years. And they're looking at new spaces. And one of those seems to be maternal vaccines. So the RSV program is not the only one. They're also developing a group B strep vaccine. These are bacteria that in the US, we manage it pretty well. Pregnant women are screened for it and they're given antibiotics during delivery if they are positive for this bacteria, but it's a very high unmet need in, in other regions. Do you have any insight into how companies are thinking about charging to this? I haven't heard anything about how they're thinking about charging for it. I've heard that this is, you know, a multi-billion dollar market. I think the biggest hurdle is going to be uptake and adoption of these vaccines, especially when you're talking about maternal populations. But I think that's the biggest challenge for any vaccine these days is public hesitancy towards any any new vaccine, especially coming out of the COVID pandemic. We have looked at the vaccine revenues across pharmas, and a bunch of these products have been pretty big revenue drivers. There are multi-billion dollar vaccines at each of the big pharmas who are, are working in the vaccine space. I think that this idea of the need to engineer trust into vaccines from the beginning is really crucial. And it's probably more crucial than the pricing because there's mandatory uptake under the Affordable Care Act for preventive vaccines that have been recommended by the CDC. And, you know, I think that companies can have some confidence that they're going to get reimbursement for their, their vaccines once they're on the market. The real question is going to be whether women and men, but in the case of the maternal vaccines, obviously women are going to be willing to, to take them. And I think the really interesting thing here is that it is going to change the way that companies market their products, because usually companies think of their principal customers, if you will, as being the physicians. But in the case of vaccines, they're going to have to convince the individuals who are taking the vaccines or the parents in the case of infant vaccines to trust them. And this RSV program has something that none of the other maternal vaccine programs have, and that's clinical data, randomized clinical data from pre-market study. All right, Lauren, and you took a deeper look at Pfizer's vaccine pipeline and strategy, obviously COVID vaccine uh, that they're partnered on with BioNTech that many of us have had you know, did quite well in the marketplace, is doing quite well in the marketplace. What else did you find? So I mentioned that the company is looking into sort of vaccine spaces that have not been explored yet. More than half of the disclosed pipeline is vaccines for indications where no other vaccines exist, which I thought was really interesting. You know, Pfizer's had so much success with the pneumococcal vaccines. That's a space that they owned. They have a Lyme disease vaccine, which is sort of a a new take on an indication that failed over a decade ago, maybe 20 years ago, for commercial reasons. And, and that's a space where they think that a different narrative around Lyme disease, different profile of the vaccine itself might lead to a different commercial story. We talked about the maternal vaccines. And then in addition to the new, new untouched indications that they're going after, we're sort of seeing all of the pharmas working on vaccines converge on a few high value indications. Pfizer is trying to defend its pneumococcal market. They're one of several companies that's developing a pentavalent vaccine for meningococcal disease, 
which combines their B vaccines and their ACWY serotype vaccines. The hope there is that you would get a bigger market for those. And then we've also talked about the RSV vaccine. Yeah, it was a big, big infectious disease week for you, Lauren, last week. Um, GSK had some positive data for an antibiotic last week, and you kind of use that as an opportunity to take a look at what's cooking over at GSK. What'd you find? So GSK has always been pretty devoted to infectious diseases and antibiotics. I think we've seen even more from them in that space over the past few years as the company has sort of struggled with management turnover and has kind of failed to relaunch its oncology pipeline. So last week's news was, I think, exciting for the company and from a public health point of view because they had a couple of trials stopped early, phase three trials, for a novel antibiotic. It's a new mechanism for uncomplicated urinary tract infection, and they were stopped early for efficacy. So it's not too often that we get a novel antibiotic on the market, which I think was interesting in itself. And yeah, it was also an opportunity to look at the other strategies that GSK is using to address antimicrobial resistance. I also spoke with the the pharma about their GMMA platform, which is actually a, a vaccine platform to target bacterial infections that they think could help address the problem by reaching more infections and and particularly the ones that are prone to develop resistance. Sounds good. Well, you've written really a collection of vaccine stories and the one charticle, if that's what we're still calling it anyway, it was a a great slide deck that really digs into uh, what's happening across the industry in vaccines. Uh, All of it's up on our website, biocentury.com like to turn now to Simone, uh, who had a great conversation on the BioCentury show last week with Andy Plump, who is Takeda's president of R&D. Simone, what were uh, some of the top takeaways from your conversation? Well, it's always great and interesting to talk to Andy. And actually, I think that the conversation I had with him really links back to what Steve said before and Lauren was talking about in terms of getting people to take that vaccine, something Andy Plump is very interested in and passionate about is building trust, uh, building trust in the industry, which actually has taken quite a dive, in fact. Andy produced some numbers showing that reputational trust for the biopharma industry increased during the pandemic. That may not be a surprise, and it sort of has gone back to pre-pandemic levels Andy, of course, is not only president of R&D at Takeda, but also led the COVID R&D Alliance, which was a group of industry R&D heads. In fact, they got together faster than the active alliances. Many of them were in these together. And this really, as we all have talked about a lot, an unprecedented coming together of uh, people who are normally fierce competitors. And what Andy told me is that they're still fierce competitors, but he actually really believes that the momentum and common ground that they found can be continued and must be continued. He talked about the fact that there's a group called HEVA, which is a collection of R&D heads that used to meet for like a weekend, a year, and they discuss some sort of top industry things. Those people are now meeting like every six to eight weeks, and they have 
a bunch of things on their agenda that he calls pre-competitive, that they are working through together. So they don't expect to address specific diseases in an industry-wide way, but certainly solve things that I would call structural or infrastructural problems. And I thought that was that was a very interesting way that he's looking at it. He's he's quite optimistic that kind of camaraderie and collaboration can continue. All right. That program can be found on our website as well. And it is free with registration. Do check it out. Simone and Andy talked about all sorts of great stuff and it's definitely a very uh, fun and engaging conversation. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. We will catch you next week.